When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the From the Shadows podcast. I am the producer, Jason Lewis. I would like to thank you for tuning in to the From the Shadows podcast. And without further ado, here is your host, Shane Grove. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Shane Grove, host of the From the Shadows podcast. And today I am with just about everybody from the crew. Uh, We got the judge. Good morning, everyone. We got Jerry, the ghost hunter. Hey there, everyone. Jason, the super producer. How's it going? The sunshine of everybody's lives, Elisa. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) And joining us today is a very special guest, um, author, world-recognized cryptozoologist, and television personality, Ken Gerhardt. Ken, welcome this morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. I I think the honor is... uh, is basically all ours. <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, Ken is is what I would consider one of the the godfathers of cryptozoology in the world. Him, Lyle Blackburn, Nick mm-hmm. Redford, um, as long with all you know with the with the Finding Bigfoot crew. So Ken is one of the leading people in this field, world renowned, and we're really excited to have him here. Uh, we're going to talk about some uh, some books he's written. Some interesting stories from there, including stuff from Ohio, which I think will interest our listeners. So without further ado, Elisa, why don't you uh, introduce Ken to our listeners? Well, I've known Ken for, oh man, probably about four years now, close to five. Um, Yeah, four or five. Yeah, close to five. (laughs) Um... First time I ever see, heard of him was on, I believe, one TV show. So it was Monsters and Mysteries in America. Fabulous show. <laughs> yes. I don't remember what episode it was, to be honest. <laughs> it was so long. And then I finally got to meet him at the Mothman Festival back in 2016, I believe. And then ever since then, we became close friends. I own most all of his books. But one, they're all amazing books. He's an amazing person and very intelligent to talk to. But I am glad he is joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Ken. Well, no, it's great to be here. I always love to talk about cryptozoology and legendary beasts. And I would bet probably most of our listeners have seen Ken on TV. Oh, yeah. They probably just didn't remember his name. Uh, Ken has been on the History Channel, the Travel Channel, Sci-Fi Network, National Geographic, A&E, True TV, Nat Geo Wild, Science Channel, and Destination America. And he's a regular guest on Coast to Coast AM mm-hmm. if people listen. So I would bet most of our listeners have probably seen Ken. They probably just didn't necessarily remember his name. But today's a, a 
a unique opportunity from the Shadows Podcast to introduce him to our listeners. And, and I'd like to point out, he wears the leather hat way better than that Blackburn guy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay? Way better than the Blackburn. Okay. People get them confused all the time. It is hilarious. <laughs> so, so, Ken, how, how did you... How did you get interested? How did you get started? I mean, I've read the I've read the Essential Guide to Bigfoot, and so I know how you got started. But for our listeners, how how did you get started in this uh, field of cryptozoology? What what was your start? Well, I always tell people that you know it wasn't a planned uh, trajectory. This isn't my planned career course. I just I was very blessed along the way, but. Um, you know, looking back at my life, I think there were many seminal events in my young life that kind of molded me into into what I do now. But, um, you know, as a young boy, I loved monsters. Like many young boys, I loved monsters. I loved animals, creatures, all that stuff, monster movies. I had a lot of exotic pets and uh, loved to spend time in the woods. My, my father was a forestry professor and we were outdoorsmen. So, all of those things kind of came together, but um, in 1976, I saw my very first TV show about Bigfoot. I'd never heard about Bigfoot, and I saw the famous Patterson-Gimlin footage and you know the men holding up plaster casts of giant footprints, and I was just something clicked inside of me. I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever that, that there could actually be real monsters, giant hairy man-like creatures running around in the woods, so went down to the library and just absorbed everything I could find on the subject. But, of course, my mother was a huge influence, and uh, she was a travel agent. She was very adventurous. She loved to tell me stories about the Mothman and the Yeti and all these things. And uh, uh, she originally wanted me to be an archaeologist, I think. But we traveled around the world, and I got to explore a lot of amazing places, from the, the Amazon jungle to Australian desert to Asia, Africa, you name it. And um, I was always researching legendary creatures or cryptids. Uh, wherever we, wherever you go around the world, there are different local legends about strange creatures. And uh, by age 15, my family was vacationing at Loch Ness in Scotland. And, of course, that was probably planned by my mother as well. But, you know, that was my first exposure to, uh, to, to try field research. Even at a young age, I was trying to get answers. So I would interview the locals and I had a little eight millimeter movie camera that I would document everything with and stuff. So it's just been kind of a lifelong thing. Um, now my life took a different turn and I was a musician for many years and I had a, a great time doing that for a couple of decades. But then, uh, then probably about two decades ago, I got back into field research. I met some Bigfoot researchers here in Texas that were very active going out in the field all the time and just started tagging along and then, you know, just, wrote some books, and um, everything else has just been, you know, I've been very blessed, uh, very fortunate to, to get on some of the TV So basically you like have that. led the life that every young man would want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Be in a rock band and chase monsters. That's right. <laughs> I mean, seriously. It gets what, no better than that. What gets better than that? I mean, Nothing. he, he we, when we were 15, we had to go to Lake Erie. He got to go to Lake <laughs> We see a sturgeon, we think we saw a monster. <laughs> Well, well, Ken, it, you you bring up being a musician, and I want to, um, and we discussed this a little bit about uh, um, about you doing that. But in the book, I read an interesting little uh, story that you had that took place in Mansfield, Ohio, when you were mm -hmm. on the road as a musician. Could, would you like to 
to share that with our listeners since that's right in our backyard? Oh, yeah. Um, well, my, my, you know, I had an opportunity to tour around uh, North America with my band. We had a, a van, and we would tour around. And oftentimes I was the driver, particularly at night because I don't drink, and I'm you know pretty good night driver. So um, sometimes if we had a little extra time on our road trips, on our tours, I would pull over where I, there was a, any type of Bigfoot sighting or a strange creature, and, you know, I always... It was always funny because some of the band members would wake up in the middle of the night. Where are we? Why are we stopped? And then, you know, <laughs> go back to sleep, you know. Don't worry about it. But um, that's, how a lot had of, a night that's how a lot of horror movies start. You do yeah, exactly. Guys in a van. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. But we were touring in 2003, I believe, and um, we had a night off in between a couple of cities, and we were staying in Mansfield. And um, I had remembered the story, a famous account I had read about, Charles Mill Lake, which was close by there, about a humanoid creature that had risen out of the water in front of uh, some teenage boys back in the 50s. And this was written about by John Keel and I think Lauren Coleman and others. And uh, they had named the thing Big Head, which I thought was kind of a funny, not not quite Bigfoot, but apparently this thing had a big foot, a big head. And, and there was also a legend about orange eyes, you know, kind of a, an Ohio version of Bigfoot in the area. So Anyways, went out to the lake, um, and there was one guy, one of the guitar players in the band was also really interested in, in cryptozoology and weird stuff, so he decided to go out with me, and we went out to, to Charles Mill Lake, and we just kind of spent the night camped out, parked by the lake with our van, and um, we didn't find or see any Bigfoot evidence while we were out there. It's a pretty spooky lake, by the way. It's very swampy, kind of a big swamp type thing, so it does have a spooky uh, vibe about it. Um, but, you know, we we were seeing airplanes kind of fly through the sky all night long, and everyone can recognize an airplane pretty quickly at night, right? You can hear the engine sound, you see the flashing lights, and there's a plane, there's a plane. But after a while, we saw this other thing, and it started from across the lake. We noticed this giant, it looked like a big black triangular object, and it had flashing lights on all three points, and they were multicolored. I think it was like white, red, blue, or something. And this thing actually began to hover towards us, and it was making no sound whatsoever. It was completely silent, and uh, it looked huge, and uh, it just kind of passed over our heads. And I, I didn't have a camera for shooting, you know, things like that, so I tried to get some pictures, but they didn't turn out. But anyways, we, we decided it was a UFO. I mean, we couldn't tell what this thing was. It wasn't a plane. It was moving slower. It was quiet, but it was illuminated. And, of course, uh, my friends in the UFO community have probably heard of the, the Black Triangles. Apparently, that's kind of a, a fairly common. So, anyways, we had a UFO sighting out there that night. Now, I, I always tell people that, you know, I can't say it was definitively like an extraterrestrial spaceship. Maybe it's some kind of military thing. Or See, I know uh, Ohio has a lot of Air Force bases and probably have some things up there. So, But, anyways, this is one of those things that, uh, you know, you go out looking for one thing and something other unexpected happens and you see something else you can't quite explain but um that was that was a fun night so <clears throat> ken i had the opportunity to to read one of your books menagerie of mysterious beasts really really good read for anybody out there who hasn't had an opportunity to pick this book up you can go to amazon you can pick it up it is chock full of really interesting stories and hits a lot of different things um, from this book, though, that you wrote, what's your favorite cryptozoology topic? Oh, man. 
that's really tough. People ask me that a lot. I, I, I tried to, you know, create an analogy and say, well, that would be like picking your favorite child. And then I've had parents tell me, well, you can actually do that. Yo, <laughs> trust me, you can definitely and, uh, do not, that. Not being a parent, I didn't realize that. But anyways, I digress. Um, it's tough. But, um, you know, I feel a special connection to the quote-unquote Thunderbirds. And uh, Thunderbirds, many people think of vintage cars and wines and things like that. But Thunderbird is actually a Native American legend of these giant, massive birds. And uh, But surprisingly, there have been hundreds of modern sightings of these, these birds with, wing, you know, describing wingspans anywhere from 12 to over 20 feet across. And of course, nothing like that is supposed to exist. Um, but I've interviewed dozens and dozens of people through the years that claim that they've seen these giant birds. And they, they say they're very raptor-like, you know, with a hooked beak like an eagle or a vulture typically solid dark feathers um are you thinking these are they're more like a petrosaur or or something like that or well you know the, the, i get reports of those too people describe things that are more like prehistoric like pterosaurs which are which are um wing specialized wing reptiles from the mesozoic era but uh no people you know i get both types but the traditional North American thunderbird that you find in many totems and Native American traditions is just like a giant eagle, but like you know five times as big. So, um, but I've written you know I've written a book about that phenomenon and I've investigated that for years and that's kind of been my niche in the cryptozoology community for many years. Is there's there, there aren't really any other researchers that are doing a lot of thunderbird research but you know i i'm a generalist so i like to investigate bigfoot and lake monsters and everything but uh the, the, those the winged creatures are, are fascinating you know ken the one thing that that um that i found really compelling about about your book the menagerie of mr mysterious beasts is actually in the conclusion um page 203 for anybody that out there follow along <laughs> but it was very interesting in that you know, you bring up the point that there's people out there who are skeptics who say, well, you know, I haven't seen this or what have you. How could it be, be real? But you point out that, you know, three-fourths of our planet is covered with very deep water, that mm -hmm. we have no idea what's underneath there. And what the the rest of the mass, the, the quarter of our planet, over one half of that is covered by rainforests and mountainous terrains and deserts and things that have probably never been explored and so humans really actually only inhabit a very tiny part of our planet and and I think you point out in here all the different species that have been discovered that people thought were extinct or didn't even exist so for the skeptic out there you know when you look at how big our planet is and how much unexplored space there is uh, to just simply say, well, there can't be anything that we haven't discovered, I think would be would be pretty naive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Ken, it seems like you've been to, you've actually, from reading and listening to you, you've been to a lot of these places that haven't been readily explored. So you obviously have some belief that, yeah, there are uh, places out there where some of these creatures and cryptids could inhabit and just never have never been discovered or have not been dis changed or disturbed in the tens of thousands or however many years they could 
have made it since they actually were thought to inhabit the uh, the Earth. Yes, well, um, I'm always hesitant mm-hmm. to use the word belief because that that's a word that's more closely associated with faith and um, you know feelings. So I, I, try, you know, I try, and I don't judge those that use that word because it's kind of a common thing in the vernacular. But as a cryptozoologist, I have an obligation to be as scientific as possible. Cryptozoology is based on traditional zoology and was founded by zoologists. And so, in order to get the respect of the scientific community, we try to follow a scientific methodology. So what I tell people is that I'm, you know, I'm convinced that there are species out there that are that are undiscovered. I'm convinced by the evidence. Some, some more promising than others. You know, it's a, scientific is all about probability and, and weighing evidence. So, um, but no doubt, I mean, as you, know, as you guys said, that there have been many species discovered. I mean, there are literally thousands of new species described every year, but most of those are very small. But, uh, you know, every year there's a handful of, you know, surprisingly large animals or substantially sized animals that are found in different habitats around the world. Now, most of those discoveries are made in places like uh, uh, Eastern Asia, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, uh, Africa, the Congo, and then, you know, South America, New Guinea, places like that where you have these vast uh, habitats of, of rainforest. But, you know, there are things that are also found in, you know, occasionally in North America, Europe, and so forth. But you're right. Um, they're, they're, I'm convinced that there are some of these things, like, you know, I tell people with, in terms of Bigfoot, I've never seen one with my own eyes, but I'm about 90% convinced they exist because having spent my lifetime looking at the evidence, I mean, it's pretty overwhelming when you look at all of it, in my opinion. Uh, some cryptids probably less probable because there's just not as much evidence or no physical trace evidence. So you kind of have to take each cryptid on a, a case-by-case basis and just kind of you know delve in and look at what evidence there is. Now, the vast majority of evidence for all cryptids is anecdotal, so it's almost always eyewitness sightings, descriptions, and legends and things like that. So there's very, very little physical evidence, which is why I think many people are, uh, are very skeptical, and I, you know, I don't take that personally. People have a right to, to form their opinion based on, on what, you know, what they see. Well, well you, you have obviously seen the Patterson-Gimlin film, mm-hmm. and you, yeah. you are friends, I'm assuming, with Bob, um, have spoken with mm-hmm. him, have talked to him. Now, to me, it doesn't get any clearer evidence of what is actually out there running around as masquerading as Bigfoot. And yet that, I mean, other than actually having the uh, specimen that somebody could physically study, uh, dissect, or or whatever they want to do to it, that is the most compelling evidence to me that there is. And yet that is the most torn apart, uh, questioned, uh, dissected, yeah, dissected in a different way. Uh, so, so what's it? What would it really take, in your estimation, to convince people that, um, you know, just in Bigfoot's case, that it really exists? Other than the people that have seen it and been uh, had yeah. their lives changed by it. Well, at this point, I mean, it really is going to take hard physical evidence empirical evidence such as a body, a bone, 
DNA that's been, you know, gone through the, the proper channels and, and studied by, by bona fide scientists. So we do have a lot of trace evidence for Bigfoot. The Patterson film, Gimlin film, is convincing to a lot of people. Other people look at it and kind of shrug it off and say it looks like a guy in a costume, but typically those people haven't spent a lot of time looking at it or analyzing it. But, uh, you know, we have a number of footprints that have been documented, photographed, measured, cast with plaster. And uh, for, in terms of Bigfoot, those footprints have spanned decades all over North America, and they're very consistent. I mean, they're very convincing. Uh, and I don't pretend to be a, a, a footprint expert. That would be more like, uh, you know, Dr. Jeff Meldrum or Cliff Berrickman, guys that have really put a lot of time into studying the footprints, but just looking at a, you know, an assortment of, of those, they're very consistent. They're obviously much larger than human feet, <laughs> much, much larger, averaging about 15 and a half inches long, so huge. Um, but they, you know, they have a consistent design, morphology uh, that's different than a human foot, and, um, and that keeps turning up everywhere. And, you know, they, they're usually found in very remote areas. So, you know, the skeptics that want to argue, well, people are faking those. Well, maybe in some cases, but, you know, if you find a random set of Bigfoot tracks up in the wilderness, I mean, what are the odds that someone went up there thinking <laughs> that they were going to be found, yeah. you know? Yeah, the, 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 yeah, what's the odds that Shaquille O'Neal's <clears throat> up there in his bare feet? Yeah, walking around. Stomping and around. Also Hoping that somebody's going to come across his, and then he's really going to play it. That's really going to be a you great never trick. Know. I oh, mean. Well, the other thing you have to consider is the, <laughs> you know, if someone, even if someone said, "Well, look, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to use a, a fake foot, and we're going to make a model," you, you're subject to weather conditions and the degradation of of the sample anyway. So, I mean, uh, you know, I was in, uh, and an aside, I, I I found a black bear print at uh, Malabar State Farm in Mansfield. Well, there shouldn't be black bears there. So I took a picture of it, and I sent it to ODNR, and they said, yeah, that's a black bear print. Where'd you see that, Pennsylvania? I go, no, I'm in Mansfield. They're like, well, there shouldn't be a black bear there. Well, I said, I know that. So I came back a couple days later, and, of course, that print was completely gone. Mm-hmm. You know, Weatherhead mm-hmm. or other people had trampled it. So. so the person that was trying to play a trick on you <laughs> that made the fake black, but, you know, they, you know, they were Let's hoping this way. that you got the... I, I didn't gamble that it was a fake print. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, it's because of um, people's attitudes like this is the reason why I, I really appreciate how you take a scientific approach towards um, your investigations as well as how when you put them in the books... And everything, I like how it's it's irrefutable. Whatever what details and what information you do provide, it's laid out in a scientific manner. So therefore, that eliminates a lot of the argument. You know, in the, in the legal system, in the legal system, we have something that's called uh, the best evidence rule. So at trials, when people are trying to make decisions of uh, one way or the other, you know, they have to look at the evidence, and we have a rule. It's called best evidence rule. And if you want to try to persuade somebody of something, you have to present the best evidence. And, you know, to me, eyewitness testimony is, is the best evidence. And, you know, we're not trying to necessarily take a criminal point of view, say, where well, you have to prove something beyond reasonable doubt. In civil cases, it's just preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not. And I think based upon all the eyewitnesses that, that obviously probably you've talked to and people's talked to, 
that the preponderance of the evidence is that there are these things out there. And yeah, I, I think so too. I, I think that eyewitness testimony is, you know, <clears throat> particularly skeptics will, will quickly disregard it and say, you know, there's a whole barrage of excuses they use. Well, eyewitness testimony is unreliable and people can't remember things properly or, or fill in the, in the dots. But, um, you know, the thing is, looking at a big picture, when you have corroborating eyewitness testimony, so that is you're interviewing people from, you know, that don't know each other from different places and, and you know, their, their physical descriptions are similar, and that's what you have in terms of Bigfoot. Again, you have thousands now of eyewitness sightings that have been documented through the decades, and the descriptions are almost all identical, you know. So, I mean, if, if people were making up stories, they might, they might be prone to change or embellish or put their own, you know, fingerprints on a on a particular description. So that's, and also multiple eyewitness testimonies. And those are really exciting to me when you have, you know, two or three or, or more eyewitnesses that have, that, that encounter a cryptid or, or see something and, and their testimonies are all consistent. You know, that, that I'm sure that's similar in, in the legal system as well. So. And the credibility of the witnesses, that carries yeah. a lot of weight yeah. as well. Yeah, and it's certainly you've interviewed enough people that you've probably got to the point where you can tell if somebody's full of crap, for lack of a better. I mean, I mean, right? I mean, I mean, you could pretty much say, okay, all right, I'm, I'm going to listen to the rest of the story. Yeah, I mean, when you get the story, right after I finish my fifteenth beer, <laughs> I got a funny yeah. story about that. Can you remember last year beer? at the okay. OBC about this lady saying she had? Um, some account with the dog man, and you laughed about that one. I I don't remember that one specifically, and I I try not to be disrespectful and laugh at know, people. Kid. But you, know, so, was... you may be right, but you know sometimes if the stories are more sensational, do you remember what she was saying? Or? She was talking about like she was having mind speak or something with the dog man, and came up to her and was like trying to talk to her or something like that. It was crazy. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you, you get a little bit of that, and um, again, I try to be respectful of people's, you know, experiences, because I don't always, but I, that is a recurring issue where I'm, because I'm on television, I constantly have people that are getting in touch with me, and uh, many of them will have sensational stories, and, and sometimes if they come across as credible, and I, I, th I get the sense that they're, you know, they're, they're compelling, then, I, then I'll want to interview them. Um, other people... You know, and again, you're right, it's it's probably similar to the legal system, but you get a sense for people and their motivations. And, um, you know, so, some people you just, sometimes the way that they interpret things or, or try to express their experiences, it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't have credibility right off the bat, you know. And so you have to kind of use your judgment and just... Um, take take them all on a case by case basis, but I do get some people that are a little bit far out there in terms of their you know what they're claiming, even more so than the regular you know far out claims that we get in cryptozoology, and um, you know I've spent a lot of time this year for my Bigfoot book interviewing forensic psychologists and things, trying to get a little bit more knowledge and background on on the workings of the human mind because it's a fascinating thing, particularly when you're talking about um, things like legendary creatures and people experiencing those. And so, for example, people that tend to be excessively verbose, 
um, in their descriptions right off the bat. You know, that that's a little bit of a, a of a problematic thing as a researcher, because you know, I always I almost always prefer it if people that have had a sighting or just kind of keep it all about the facts. You know, this is what happened. I don't, you know, I can't explain it, whatever, but, you know, people whose descriptions tend to meander or they interpret their experiences as having some type of greater significance, you know, that, that as if, you know, that they've befriended a dog man and the dog man, they're the only one in the world out of billions of people that this particular dog man wants to make contact with, things like that that just um, seem to have a, a kind of hidden agenda. If you well, will. do you think, Ken, that... You know, when I had my dogman experience, it was back in the mid-80s, and there was no social media, no internet, no way to share your story. And so, you know, young kids like myself or anybody, you're reluctant to tell these stories because you'd be ridiculed and people make fun of you and stuff like that because you Mm -hmm. did not know. I mean, for me, being a 15, almost 16-year-old kid, I had no frame of reference that anybody else in the entire world had had a similar experience. And so you're reluctant to tell the story. Do you think yeah. that now with all the different shows out there and, and the field of cryptozoology growing, that people are more likely to come forward to tell their stories versus probably in the 70s, 80s, probably even 60s? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think no doubt. I think there, you know, uh, the proliferation of social media and, you know, this amazing technology we have at our disposal it's been a double-edged sword. The, the good side, the good part is that you do have websites and forums and, and podcasts such as yours where people that maybe have had an experience and they've been reticent through the years to talk about it for fear of ridicule and stuff, they suddenly they feel empowered, you know, that, okay, here are people, other people that are talking about it. You know, other people have had experiences like mine. Maybe I should go forward and report it or, or talk to someone about it. So... No doubt that is a good thing, and I think a lot of television shows uh, that that have been on, and you know, you mentioned one and the Monsters and Mysteries, Finding Bigfoot, and the show I was on, Monster Quest, that were very popular. You know, I think those are also good in terms of at least getting people around the water cooler to talk about topics like Bigfoot and so on and so forth. So, no doubt. Um, you know, the the other side of that coin, though, is that. You know, there are many people that are reporting sightings or experiences with Dogman, Bigfoot, other creatures to websites, but, you know, they're, they're anonymous, they don't, you know, so you can't really verify the veracity of the story and things like that because you can't interview them face-to-face or they don't want to go public. Now, years ago during the 70s uh, and 80s, you know, I think there people that had Bigfoot sightings back then, and you didn't hear much about Dogman, just here and there, but people that had Bigfoot sightings in the 70s and before would actually, many of them would actually go to the law enforcement and, uh, you know, file a report and then their names would be in the newspaper and published and so they'd be open to, to public scrutiny. And I personally think that is pretty, you know, that's pretty convincing, you know, that someone would be willing to put their name out there and say, I, I encountered the Mothman or Bigfoot or whatever. Um, so unfortunately, you don't get much of that anymore. You don't really read about these things in the media or, or hear about people filing police reports too often. So um, I think both eras have had their advantages as far as that goes. But I am encouraged that we currently are in a in a time when there's at least a lot of public interest, seemingly public interest in 
cryptozoology and, and some of these strange creatures. So it is getting discussed. So I think that's encouraging. Um, Ken, before we dive into this, uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and call it the Bible of Bigfoot, the essential guide to Bigfoot that you wrote, because this is every nine-year-old guy's dream, okay? And I won't tell you how old I am now, but <laughs> if I'd have had this when I was nine, this would have been fantastic. But, uh, you know, to go back to a couple things you said before we dive into this, I, all the really believable stories that I've heard of people on podcasts and, and, and uh, shows and stuff talking about an experience with Bigfoot in Dogman, nobody was really excited about about the experience. So, yes, as soon as everybody says, oh, yeah, and I had a Dogman experience and they only wanted to talk to me, I, all I ever hear is, oh, my God, I saw this, you know, I was scared to death. I didn't know what yeah. to do. I, you know, mm-hmm. so to me, other than you guys that are out there, uh, for a television show or an investigation actively trying to find something, nobody ever seems like, yes, I, I changed my life forever. I can't sleep. I can't go camping. I don't want to go on. <laughs> well, I was on, and I was on Shannon LeGrow, uh Into the Fray podcast, and Shannon's been you know, nationally, uh, you know, on TV and things like that. And she asked me about my dogman encounter and said, you know, if you could have this experience again, would you want to do it? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, well, no, because you can't run nearly as fast <laughs> now. But as then you she's could. like, well, suppose you were in a tank and you're. I'm like, no, I don't. You know, it's one of them things that that forever changes you. Um, you know, for example, I never go outside at night, even walking to my car, where I don't look to the side of my house and wonder what's lurking by those bushes, what could be there. I mean, it's one of those things that, that, no, I'm not excited, like, oh, I had this wonderful... No, I, it's one of those terrifying experiences that forever changes your perspective on on the world. So, I, And I think we find that people that are kind of reluctant to tell their story because of the trauma that they suffer from, those are the most credible people versus the people that want to wave the banner of, oh, guess what, I'm part of the club now because... I got to see something. That's well, just back into the law thing. Think of how many people don't report crimes, don't report right. assaults, don't report because of the shame or the they don't fear. want to be ridiculed yep. or the fear. And they don't want to relive that experience, yeah. too. Yeah. True. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back to something else you mentioned, the mind speak. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that you're watching the current um, show that's on the Expedition Bigfoot. Um, and one of the fir- things they mentioned in the first episode was something in that regard to the mind speak. So I, I, you don't need to throw anybody under the bus or, or say, but, but that kind of struck me as, I, I mean, that doesn't seem like something that uh, you, from your uh, view of, of this cryptid, very scientific uh, very approach. Very scientific approach is something that you'd really buy into. And I just wonder, like, when you hear something like that, because when I first thought that, I thought, ooh, I don't know about mm-hmm. that. I mean, like, I think it's really cool what they're doing on the show or what they're attempting to do. But then when I heard that, I, I'm like, how much of that is just sensationalized and, and uh, really has no part in the, in the, in the mission as a whole? You know, how much hurt does that do to 
the subject. Mm. Yeah, um, no, I don't. I'm not an advocate of any of the, the telepathic mind speak cloaking, any of those things that are associated with, with Bigfoot. Uh, those tend to be more paranormal in nature. And, I, you know, some of that I do associate with Dogman and, and Mothman and some of the, the stranger creatures. But um, Bigfoot I view as an, uh, simply a relic hominid, a man like form, uh, basically a giant bipedal ape that's, you know, probably sprung up during the Pleistocene, and it's still around, you know, so, um, but I will say, and I've watched a little bit of the show, I haven't gotten to, to watch every minute of every episode, just kind of tuned in here and there, um, what I'll say is that, uh, and I don't think I'm letting on any huge secrets here, but having appeared on like 40 different TV shows myself, when you're on, when you're doing these TV shows, it's kind of, you're kind of struggling and battling with the producers constantly, because, you know, keep in mind that TV shows are produced by the networks that are spending millions of dollars, and they have the final say. So as a participant on the shows, and you certainly can put your foot down in the beginning and tell them, you know, I have integrity, I'm not going to make things up or whatever, and, you know, that's what I always do when I'm on a, when I go on to a TV show. Hey, I'm not going to say or do anything that's going to harm the credibility of my field or, or question my integrity or whatever. You can do all that, but once you get in there and start filming, you have these other forces that they're pushing back that are saying, well, you know, it's a TV show. It's, a, it's supposed to be entertainment, so they always want to have... If I was producing a TV show about Bigfoot, I don't think anyone would, would watch it, honestly, because it's <laughs> so, so dry and scientific. It would be like, you know, a lot of people would just say, oh, this is, this is kind of boring, but... Um, so what you're but, saying you know, is you probably, wouldn't have an episode of, like, Mountain Monsters. <laughs> no, Absolutely not. That's not my <laughs> cup of tea. I know some people like that stuff. But, you know, what I'm saying is, and again, I don't have any privileged knowledge of this, but I could imagine that you might have some of the producers or some of the people at the network that are kind of pulling aside the the, the, the characters on the, or the personalities on the show and saying, well, you know what, can we talk about this? And reluctantly, they might have to, well, you know, I don't, <laughs> don't really have to feel comfortable with that, but... You know, so so maybe some of that has just been kind of injected by some of those those other forces at the network and the producers. So I'm just speculating here, but that might be some of it. That might not be something that the the researchers had in mind right off the bat, but they just kind of found themselves in a situation where okay, they have to compromise and say okay, well we'll we'll, we'll explore that a little bit here and there. Um, yeah, because we really want we really want to present the subject matter. We want to present yeah. the show, and so we're going to have to. We're going to have to allow the the network to take some artistic to, liberties with the subject matter because they're trying to to get ratings and and obviously yeah networks you are have to, to make, make those compromises that's it and um, you know I heard once heard uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum who of course is a you know he's an academic and a scientist so he has to watch out for his reputation well known Bigfoot investigator but. Um, you know, he once said, because people were criticizing him for being on some of these TV shows that kind of took kind of a, a little bit of a kooky turn here and there, which is completely out of his control because he's just going on there and doing his bit. But, um, you know, as he said, you know, the reason I'm on all these shows is because I feel like I have some of the best information on the subject of Bigfoot. And every TV show I go on is an opportunity for me to put out as much of that good information as possible, as ob objectively as possible. And if they don't pick me, then they might end up choosing someone else that's going to put 
a really lot of really bad information out there, you know. And right. So I mean, it's you know, those are that's an example of one of the compromises you make. It's like like you said, you want people to, you know, you want to present the case for Bigfoot as an, you know as intelligently as possible, as scientifically as possible, and then a compromise might be that, you know, the producers want to sneak in a little weird kooky thing <laughs> here or there and. You certainly don't have to agree with it, but you know you you have to at least tolerate that that those ideas might surface. So. It's kind of, it's kind of like us discussing the Jerry tackling Bigfoot, <laughs> and if it's possible, we like to sneak that in every now and then. Yeah. I think we slip that in every podcast. We slip that, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> so, Ken, let me ask you this: based upon your education, your training, your experience in the field of cryptozoology, as well as writing really the essential guide to Bigfoot. Based upon that, do you believe Jerry a... Jerry, how much do you weigh? 250. 250-pound man could, in fact, actually tackle a Sasquatch. Um, I don't know if he could tackle it. I mean, he would certainly... He might be able to, and I would encourage him, if he were going to do this, I would hope that the ultimate goal is to get some type of physical evidence, so I would say, like, try to pull some of its hair out as it's pummeling you into the ground. That sounds like a fabulous <laughs> idea. Is a concussion and, and a broken leg physical evidence? And, 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 no, and no disrespect to him, but to Jerry, but, um, I mean, think about it. Even a chimpanzee could probably whoop you pretty good because <laughs> apes, apes are incredibly powerful animals. Their muscle mass and the way they're built compared to human, homo sapiens is pretty impressive. And, in fact... You've heard these horrible stories about chimpanzees attacking people and ripping their ears and noses off and things like that. So, I mean, you know, uh, uh, and a Bigfoot is presumably a Sasquatch, according to my research in, in my book. Uh, you know, they weigh anywhere from 500 to 1,000 pounds, 800 to 1,000 pounds. So that's a pretty huge animal. You're talking about something as big as a grizzly bear. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I encourage, if that's your dream... <laughs> he put it on a I think that's admirable, you know, to set your goals very high. But I'm gonna tell you tackle it. I am going to capture it. Okay. <laughs> well, so I'm gonna tell you what, Ken, if you are gonna produce a Bigfoot show, here is here's a part of the of the blooper reel. Right, <laughs> <laughs> Jerry. This reminds me of the guy that created the Python suit and was gonna have the Python swallowing. Or the guy that created the grizzly bear suit, you know. Yeah, that didn't end. That is, there's no end. Right. Okay, so <laughs> back to more stories. So, so I want to get back to you know before we before we uh, wrap this up here, I I, I want to say I, I read the essential guide to Bigfoot that you just wrote. Excellent book. Um, anybody that wants to learn, I mean everything. I mean you're not going to learn every little minute detail, but if you want to get a Knowledge of the origin of the of the of the Bigfoot Sasquatch legends. Learn all the important people um, in the field uh, from the beginning. I mean, it just it's every book that I read as a nine, ten, eleven year old wrapped in the one. I mean, it's fantastic. Um, and and like you know, Jason mentioned, your approach to it is really. Um, the scientific approach, just stating the facts, but then you add some some of your own personal beliefs in there, which come from a very credible place. I mean, it's not like you're 
uh, one of us writing a book, you know, and, and talking about your, you actually have some, some credibility. But I want to touch for the people out there that might be on the fence of, do I really want to go buy this book? I want, there's two stories in here that I believe uh, I want to get a little bit more from you that, mm-hmm. uh, um, the one chapter was was you exploring the worldwide phenomena of like the little feet, the little cre- yeah. you know creatures, little foot, mm-hmm. little mm-hmm. foot. Which, I mean, after reading it, I'm just like, how on earth do these? This is not possible. You know, it just makes so much sense that these little creatures are running around in different remote parts of the world. But there's one that actually you talk about took place in Ohio. October 3rd, 2016. Um, mm-hmm. How much of that do you remember right offhand? I mean, I'm putting you on the spot, but would you care to kind of tease our audience that's you know may, mainly based in Ohio uh, about this story in our own backyard? Yeah, um, it, is, it is fascinating uh, to, to consider that in addition to Bigfoot, there may be a, a, a pygmy-sized version, uh, but you know, to kind of encapsulate everything for your listeners, all over the world you have legends and traditions of little people, right? Most people think of like fairies, elves, gnomes. Mm -hmm. But if you explore those legends in depth in different cultures around the world, typically they're described as hair-covered, little hair-covered man-like creatures that live in the wilderness. Um, So, you know, I, I have interviewed, for example, Native American people from Minnesota to Alaska that that have sworn to me that they have these little hair pygmy three to five foot tall hair covered man like creatures living in their on their reservations or, or on their property and they're quite scared of them. So I write about that in the book and I look at some of the worldwide legends and traditions that kind of corroborate that. Uh, but the, uh, in, as you mentioned in 2016 I was contacted by a gentleman uh, in Ohio named Jake Dressel and I interviewed both him and his girlfriend over the phone, and I've gotten to know them a little bit through the years. Um, but they claim that, and they didn't use the word Littlefoot. I kind of incorporated that. But according to Jake, on two separate mornings, um, they were, and this is in northeast Ohio, by the way, um, they were walking their dog, uh, you know, real early before they go to work, they walk their dog, and originally it was Jake, about 4.30 in the morning, he was out walking his dog, in his, and he lives on the edge of a wooded kind of area, and he said his dog began acting up, and um, he assumed it was chasing an animal of some kind, a squirrel or something, and he said that what he suddenly saw his dog was barking at was this little upright, two-legged, three-foot-tall creature that walked out from behind the house and kind of up a hill. And he only caught a glimpse of it, but he knew it was weird. And he's like, it's not a raccoon. It's, there's the way it walked. He said it had a slight waddle, kind of like a dwarf. And um, being that it was early and dark, he thought, okay, maybe his mind is playing tricks on him, whatever. So he didn't say anything to his wife, uh, his girlfriend at the time. Uh, and then the following morning, his girlfriend came in about the same time after she had been, you know, they took turns walking the dog. She came in and said that she had seen something, and the dog had lunged at something, and she described the exact same thing, a little three-foot-tall, dark-colored, hairy creature that was walking on its hind legs and kind of waddling uh, through the neighborhood. And uh, so, the, you know, Jake originally used the name Troll. That's what he 
said it was like this little hairy troll-like creature. Um, so yeah, so I mean that's just one example that um, you know you don't get a lot of those in terms of of areas like Ohio. Now up in New York they have, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania they have a thing called the Albert Witch, uh, which is they have a festival there. In fact, it's like a little foot type creature, so that's not too far away, I guess, from Ohio. But anyways, you have Native American traditions that describe these creatures all over the continent, and they're very just like Bigfoot, they're very consistent. And they always make that distinction that what they're describing is not a juvenile Bigfoot or Sasquatch or, or you know, it's tiny. Um, so, yeah, you have these little foot legends and stories. And the thing that makes it kind of brings it all home for me is the fact that, um, you know, in 2003, scientists uh, discovered the remains of a, of a real-life little foot uh, on the little Indonesian island of Flores, a fossilized human-like form that stood only about three feet tall and was alive around the same time, time period that Homo sapiens was around about 50,000 years ago, which isn't that, that long ago that you had these little non-human pygmy-sized beings that then shared our planet. So it's all, it's all very fascinating, but it's, it's, I think it's an oft-overlooked aspect of the, the Bigfoot phenomenon as a whole the possibility that there could be more than one type and perhaps a miniature type. Wow. Yeah, that, and definitely that would be something Jerry might be able to handle. Tackle. Yeah, Jerry, <laughs> Littlefoot. I'll capture one of those things. Now, now, the one chapter, and, and we'll t- I, wanted to, I wanted to touch on this quick before we uh, let you get going here, but the one chapter you put in what I uh, am taking as some of the more credible um, Bigfoot sightings over the years, mm-hmm. and one that really stood out to me that I had to read, I even read to these guys before we started, was one that took place in 1975 in the Lummi Reservation. Am I pronouncing mm. that right? Um, where the people, or something was standing beside the garage when the patrolman showed up, and all those people had their headlights on the on the creature, and he stood there within 35 feet just kind of staring the creature down for 20 minutes? Like, wh- wh- how? I mean, explain that one. That, that blows my mind that that many people, especially somebody in law enforcement, are right there with this thing. And, um, I mean, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah the, the Lummi Reservation is in far northern northwest Washington near the town of Bellingham. Uh, and during uh, a two-month period during 1975, there were apparently like over 100 sightings of Bigfoot roaming this forested area on the reservation. And uh, as you said, um, on November 22nd of 1975, uh, a tribal police officer named Kenny Cooper uh, got a report that there was a prowler near a residence, and when he showed up, Cooper said that there were a bunch of the neighbors had gotten into their cars. I guess they were scared, understandably so, and they were shining their headlights on this seven-and-a-half-foot-tall ape-like creature that was standing on this property. And uh, Cooper knew about all the Bigfoot sightings that had been happening, but to his credit, he got out of his car with his shotgun and approached this thing, and he claims he got within 35 feet of it and kind of had a standoff with it for about 20 minutes or so. He said it crouched down and just kind of looked at him. It said it looked like a gorilla, basically, with kind of glowing eyes, reflective eyes. It smelled bad. 
it was showing its teeth, which was interesting. It was opening its mouth and kind of baring its teeth, which is a, a standard thing that primates do when they're trying to, to be intimidating or aggressive. And uh, But he didn't want to shoot at it because he, you know, as, as a, a member of the Lummi tribe, he had heard that, you know, that there were laws protecting these creatures or, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps in many traditions or Native American traditions, it would be considered very bad luck to, to kill one of these things or, or harm it. So he left the scene. Uh, he claims that this thing actually trotted alongside his vehicle for a while and screamed at him. And perhaps the most fascinating thing about this case, other than the multiple witnesses, is that he actually he was able to record this. He had a tape recorder. Or actually, he had his radio uh, was patched into the police station. I guess they recorded all of the, the things that were coming through the radio. So uh, there is to this day, you can hear this recording of this thing screaming at him, and it, it's uh chilling it's kind of a high-pitched shriek kind of like an eagle or something but much louder so um yeah that's one example i mean there are there are cases out there that people maybe may not be familiar with that involve law enforcement multiple eyewitnesses and and you know good good observations you know yeah you i mean and i would encourage anybody who has any interest in the in the i mean if you're listening to us Babylon, you must have some interest in in uh, Bigfoot, especially um, to go uh, to go and get the book. I mean, is there any place other than Amazon where I mean, do you have a website they can go and, and purchase the book? People can contact me through my website kengerhard.com. Uh, I'm also on social media: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So, be you know, if people want a signed copy, I'm always happy to to sign a copy or personalize a copy, and they can buy it directly from me or on Amazon. I know. Elisa has <laughs> has thrown it in my face that my copy of the book is not signed and that hers is. All my uh, books on Kindle are signed. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be happy to sign your copy next time I see you. Shane. All right. Not a okay. Hey, Ken, do you, do you, does your band still play? No, no, I've been retired from music for several years, and I honestly, um, I just don't have the energy these days with uh, everything that's going on, and, uh, you know, I love what I do now in cryptozoology, and I constantly have a, a number of projects on the table, so I just, mm-hmm. you know, to, to do music and to do it properly, it's, it's really a, you know, you have to be dedicated and put the time and the work in, and I just don't have that anymore, so. Um. Now, what's, uh, what's next? you got any upcoming television shows uh are you working on a new book now that this one's out and um speaking engagements speaking engagements um i mean what's what's coming up for you in 2020 well i appreciate that um you know when you're doing television shows you're never at liberty to talk about them until they actually hear i can't i can't comment on that but um um, right now, I'm just promoting the Bigfoot book. Um, I, I have an idea for another book I might start on next year, but um, I've, I've got a number of public appearances coming up, lectures. Um, on January 8th, uh, here in San Antonio, Texas, where I live, I'll be speaking at the Witty Museum. Uh, they're doing a Mythical Creatures exhibit right now, which is pretty amazing. And uh, so I'll be speaking at that. And then uh, next year, I'll be speaking... Uh, along with Lisa at a, at a conference in North Carolina in April, and then um, the Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Conference in Tennessee, the Southeast Texas Bigfoot Conference, Bigfoot Conferences in Michigan and Wisconsin, 
So uh, I'll be kind of on tour next year, uh, giving a, <laughs> giving lectures and appearances. That would be a, a sweet shirt. Of, be a sweet shirt. A different, the, the Ken Gerhardt. Yeah, a different type of touring. Ken so uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll meet up with some of your listeners at some of these events around the country. Um, and then you come to a couple events in Ohio, right? That uh, maybe we can encourage the listeners to. Uh, to come down and see at oh yeah the the Ohio Bigfoot Conference is a fabulous conference and I, I don't know if I'm going to make it this year it's in May and then of course you guys also have the Hawking Hills another another good Bigfoot conference and the Mothman Festival which isn't technically in Ohio right across the river there but uh, that's in September and that's always a great event so we'll we'll see if I can make some of those this year I hope now, so now, now Elisa claims that she is throwing out the invitation to you to come visit a site down there that she told our listeners about in a previous episode mm. that uh, has some Bigfoot activity. is Can we conf- confirm or deny <laughs> those reports that you may be doing an investigation in southern, uh, southern Ohio with Elisa? I, w- I wouldn't mind checking out some of those areas out there. I know that there's a lot of activity uh, traditionally in southeast Ohio is one of the most active areas in the country i think it probably ranks in the top four or five locations and uh you have some good evidence that's come out of that region for sure so i'm always interested in in looking at some of those active areas that's that's cool and we promise if you come to ohio and do an investigation we will have jerry locked up for the uh for the evening uh we can we can do that not feeding for three days we're going to sing off key getting fired up (laughs) see if he he's going to need all that pent-up aggression to actually have a chance to tackle <laughs> But, you know, Littlefoot might be, maybe you should start there. If you successfully tackle Littlefoot. I just want to see him just tackle a squirrel. A wild <laughs> dog at the park, I think, would be a good place to start. <laughs> okay, Ken, well, hey, we greatly appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Um, thanks to Alyssa for, for Elisa. <laughs> Gosh, I can't introducing every time. Yeah, for for setting up setting us up. And for my money, not only do you wear the leather hat better than than uh, Lyle Blackburn, Lyle Blackburn, you're number one in our uh, cryptozoologist list because you're the first first one to come onto the show. So you'll always be number one in our heart. You're still number one. <laughs> still number one. So uh, thank you very much. We hope you uh, enjoyed. Uh, blown an hour with us oh absolutely had a great time thanks again for having me on and uh let me talk about my book and uh, some great questions i think we had a good time so uh let's do it again sometime real soon absolutely and good luck in 2020 hitting the trails spreading the word of cryptozoology (laughs) and you know the beautiful thing about the subject matter is every year there's 12 13 14 year old boys that discover that uh, cryptozoology is no longer just something that uh, uh, you know is 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 fancy. It's it's an actual real science now, and yes. um, and it's really exciting where that field is going with with guys like you leading the way. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Down. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate Thanks your again, time. Ken. Thank Thanks. you. All right. Thanks, guys. Happy New Year to everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Yes, Happy New Year. Bye, Ken. Bye. Bye, Bye, Lise. Take care. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, a final word. Please visit us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash 
from the shadows podcast and on our Instagram page at Instagram.com forward slash from the shadows podcast. You can visit our webpage at from the shadows podcast dot go daddy sites dot com or contribute to our Facebook discussion page called after the shadows and tweet us on our Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash podcast underscore from. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to hearing from you all. Until next time, never shy away from the darkness or what may be lurking in the shadows. We are out. (laughs) <laughs> God only knows what's hiding in our shadows God only knows what's hiding in our You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.